Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding Westworld, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series, Westworld. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. What we do here on this podcast, we recap every episode of Westworld. Uh, and this week we'll be recapping Season 1, Episode 8, entitled Trace Decay. You can find more of our episodes at DecodingWestworld.com. You can also email us at DecodingWestworld at gmail.com. We have a special treat for you today. What we're going to be doing today is, in addition to doing a recap as usual on Decoding Westworld, we're going to be interviewing Charles Yu, the famous Taiwanese-American writer who actually is a co-writer on this week's episode of uh, Westworld. So should be a lot of fun. You're going to hear our normal recap episode and then an interview with Charles Yu. And so we are very much looking forward to that. We're also doing this all in real time. So uh, we are actually going to be speaking to him right after we do our recap. Uh, and hopefully nothing goes wrong in this entire process. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so that's what is uh, in store for today. So why don't we just dive straight into uh, this week's episode entitled Trace Decay. This week picks up right where last week left off. We see Ford talking to Bernard, and uh, Bernard is kind of struggling with what he's just done. Uh, and Ford does the thing that uh, the technicians do where they ask him to shut off uh, their emotions, which is really creepy when you see Bernard do it because we've seen him as human uh, or you know, under the impression that he's human. And so uh, it's a great moment. They chat about the nature of man and bots. And uh, Ford says things about what Arnold wanted and had faith in uh, and then also talked about what Bernard's purpose was. Like Bernard's purpose was to help make the robots seem more human, right? Uh, now, one thing you've written here in the show notes, Joanna, is that, you know, what can we trust of what Ford says? I right. feel like Ford is the definition of the unreliable narrator at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, we see him lie to Bernard in this episode. You know, I was yeah. I was I was chatting with someone about this, and they were like, "Well, what what motive would Ford have to lie to Bernard when the two of them are alone?" But we see him do it in this episode, so I feel right. like we cannot believe anything that Ford said. And in well, fact, this show is just sort of wall to wall in unreliable narrators, right? Like, you know, because. I don't consider Dolores a reliable narrator because I'm never sure exactly what she's seeing, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, to quote from Ford's dialogue here, uh, when we started, the host's emotions were primary colors, love, hate. I wanted all the shades in between. The human engineers were not up to the task, so I built you, and together you and I captured that elusive thing, heart, end quote. Uh, so Bernard helped establish a lot of the shades in between of the emotions. And I felt like this quote from Ford opens up the possibility that Bernard is not Arnold. I know you still think that Bernard is a clone of Arnold. 
I, I think that's entirely possible still. But if Bernard was built to help them figure things out, uh, I don't know. I think you could take that quote either way. Like you, you probably uh, saw that and interpreted it as reaffirming your theory, correct? No, I mean, I see exactly where it throws the theory into doubt for some people. I definitely do. Um, because if you try to suss out the timeline, you're like, okay, uh, Ford couldn't get quite what he wanted out of his partnership with Arnold, so he created a robot assistant to get him what he needed. But when Arnold was alive, the host seemed to have sentience. I mean, it's confusing. Um, and once again, I just have to sort of rock back on this whole idea of I never know when Ford is telling me what kind of truth, whole truth, half truth. If he's actually talking about Bernard, actually talking about Arnold when he's talking about Bernard, um, if he killed, like in this week's episode, I got the strongest sense yet that he killed Arnold, um, even though in previous episodes he implied that Arnold sort of committed suicide by bot accident. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. But if people are doubting it, I, I can see why. I definitely can. I still have the faith. I'm keeping the faith. Yeah, I think the scene – so again, to remind people, Joanna's theory, which I think is very plausible, is that uh, Bernard is a clone of Arnold and that when we see Bernard talking to Dolores and all those, all those flashback scenes, we're actually seeing Arnold talking to Dolores uh, and that that stuff is happening decades ago and that it's what led to all the stuff that's going on with Dolores and William that we see, which again, we also think is taking place decades ago. Man, this is getting complicated. Uh, yes. Anyway, uh, so uh, so this scene, I think, can either reaffirm that theory that, hey, uh, he built this clone of Arnold who's like very talented as well to help him establish these emotions or that Arnold is going to be some big reveal that happens later on that's going to be like an actor that we don't know who it is and it's going to shock us when we find out who Arnold is. Um, but interestingly, you know, something we talked about, Joanna, offline was how come no one knows what Arnold looks like, right? And if Bernard is a clone of Arnold, wouldn't people just say, hey, you look suspiciously like Arnold, one of the co-founders of the park? But in fact, the show has gone out of its way to establish that like no photos of Arnold exist. Uh, right, Logan, Logan says, says yeah. yeah, I couldn't even find a picture of Arnold, right? So it is suspicious that there's no picture of Arnold, right? Why would there be no picture of something <laughs> right. who's so important? Uh, and from a narrative perspective, why would the show conceal us, uh, you know, conceal the picture of Arnold from us until later, unless it was going to be something like Bernard is a clone of Arnold, right? Right. And the other thing, um, the other question I got a lot of this last week was, if Bernard is a host and has been working in the park for decades now, how is it the rest of the staff aren't like, hey, Jeffrey Wright never, that guy never ages or like, you know, he's got good genes. He always looks the same, (laughs) like whatever. Um, And I think they haven't made it completely explicit, but I believe the staff gets like completely rotated enough that – there aren't people who have been around long enough that they would notice that this guy has never aged. That's how I'm sort of fuzzing over it. Um, but I don't know, you know, cause they, in the, in the flashback we got early in the season or whatever it was, we saw Bernard talking to his wife, ex-wife played by Gina Torres, whether or not she's real, who knows? I don't know what to tell you about that, but it does, they do talk about rotating, on and off, you know, and Elsie talks about it too. And that's, I think that's why some people thought they were on a planet or something like that. But I do get the sense that 
Arnold, uh, that Ford regularly cleanses the Westworld staff so that uh, no one can be too wise to what he has going on at mm. any given moment. Yeah. Or they're all robots. Mm. Uh, That's another thing that a lot of people believe. So I am not quite there with that. But, yeah. Very possible. So then Ford enlists Bernard's help in covering up Teresa's death. And there's a great montage that shows how he does all the things and wipes all the logs. Uh, I, I did think it was somewhat comical when he takes a security cam footage and kind of slowly erases himself. Yeah. That was uh, yeah. a bit too on the nose. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was very chilling uh, how he methodically does this. And then with Teresa and the morgue, um, Ford shows her body to Charlotte and Stubbs and uh, goes on this big thing about how, hey, we got to reinstate Bernard. And, oh, you now, because Teresa's dead and she was the treacherous one, you know, Ford frames her, uh, uh, Ford and Bernard frame her. Now you have to give Bernard back control and, and give me more control of the safety protocols because you're going to be shorthanded and so on and so forth. Um, and so kind of uses Teresa's death to reestablish himself as a powerful force in the park. And I love it so much because Charlotte knows exactly what he's doing and but is powerless to stop him in that scene. Yeah. A lot of great a lot of great subtext there. Yeah, he's outmaneuvered her there. And the other thing that he says, I think, in that scene, he says he talks about something about putting making the um safety protocols fully automated, which is such a Jurassic Park uh term I can't even tell you. So um those fences are about to go off. That's what I think. Yeah, uh, I think it's entirely possible, certainly based on the trajectory of the show so far and what we see in this episode. (laughs) uh, It feels like they're heading for a a bad place. So then uh, Bernard does what Ford tells him, and then uh, as a reward, Ford erases his mind, but not before they have uh, what is a very expositional, but nonetheless, I thought, a very beautiful conversation about the nature of humanity and... What separates humans from from AI? I mean, did you? This is obviously we're going to be interviewing one of the co-writers of this episode, but I really liked it. It was thought provoking. You know, did it hit you in the right way, or did you find it a bit too on the nose? No, I thought it. I mean, I think Hopkins is just killing it in this role. And so as he talks about there not being it, you know, humans having their little loops, or everything we see in this episode about uh, the way that Ford believes that it's kinder and better to just turn people's emotions off like a light. Um, I just thought was really fascinating. And this is the kind of thing that I think a lot of people, when they complain about us or anyone talking about too many theories or twists of Westworld, this is what they want to be talking about, which is, um, you know, what makes a human, what separates a human from AI, uh, what does our future look like as those things become closer and closer. So, Right. Uh, that if Bernard can feel pain and we can feel pain, what, what real difference – if pain is just – a series of electrical signal, electric signals. You know, what is the difference between our pain and a, a robot's pain? Right. Um, and which, which is the question Arnold, according to Ford, unreliable narrator, the question that Arnold was preoccupied with, and that Ford was like, there is no difference, and I don't care, except that I'm God, and they're all my subjects, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so then Bernard asks if he's ever hurt someone before, and then Ford says, of course not. And as you pointed out earlier, this is a lie. And he didn't have to lie, you know, because he was about to erase Bernard's memory anyway. But I right. guess he did it just to avoid strife. Um, but, yeah, we see a, a flash of Bernard hurting Elsie. Uh, and I, I assumed killing her. But when I talked to you about this earlier today, you didn't seem convinced that Elsie's dead. 
I just don't like to, uh, you know, Assuming unless you, you yeah, unless you see the, you know, uh, the example I always use is when Bran gets pushed out the window in the first episode of Game of Thrones, and everyone's <laughs> like, "Oh my god, they killed that kid!" No, that kid's still alive on that show. So like, you never know if someone's really That's dead. fair enough. I'm I'm betting Elsie's probably dead though. But uh, yeah, and I had I had some confusion about why Elsie is dead in the first place. You know because. Why would Ford slash Bernard want Elsie dead? If you'll recall, two episodes ago, uh, Elsie was exploring a place where a code was being uploaded out of these hosts. And she found in some abandoned theater, hey, they're uploading – Teresa is the one doing it. But also she stumbled upon all this code that apparently Arnold wrote, question mark, that's reconfiguring what's going on with hosts. So if Arnold is in fact interfering with whatever Ford is doing, she's actually doing a favor to Ford by uncovering it. So why would Ford slash Bernard want Elsie dead? Uh, And what were your thoughts on this, Joanna? Because you had an explanation, right? Oh, just we don't know who has set off this new round of tinkering with the code. Like the, compu- the all the devices are saying Arnold, but what if it's actually Ford? You know, I, I don't, I don't really have the answer for you, especially because I don't think she's dead. But um, the the other option, the 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 more boring, terrible option, uh, is that this happened right around when they halted production. And I'm a little suspicious of like a couple actors being written out of the show all at once, uh, Teresa and Elsie. And I, I don't know if like maybe they were like, hey, we have too many characters. Let's let's slim down the cast or something like that. That's a really cynical interpretation of what happened, but it's possible. Yeah, uh, I just think it doesn't all quite add up. There's basically plausible explanations. For why Ford would want Elsie dead, you know, maybe she, he just doesn't want someone snooping around and finding all this stuff that's going on. But, but Elsie uncovering this info is actually helpful to Ford. She uncovers Teresa's treachery, uh, which is part of what gets Teresa killed. So why wouldn't Ford encourage that or, or feel like he could use that versus just killing Elsie? It didn't make much sense to me. But maybe we can ask Charles about that later okay. on in the episode. Sounds good. Uh, anyway, then the other thing. Zach- Zach Byerly in the in the live chat room. Uh, I just I don't want him to pass out because he's very excited about this. But he thinks it's to frame Teresa. I don't agree only because Ford had enough information already to frame Teresa. He like, already he already framed Teresa. Yeah, he, he already framed already. Teresa. You know, like the, for, well, Teresa's reputation is already in tatters. Yeah, you know? in theory, Elsie died. If you think Elsie died, she died before he killed Teresa, right? Right. But, but he didn't need the Elsie body to set up Teresa. He has all this other stuff that he put on her. The other idea that some people have is, you know, a lot of people thought because they were 3D print because Ford is 3D printing a body down in the basement of that house uh still printing or maybe he's printing <laughs> multiple, I don't know. But a lot of people thought it was going to be Teresa. I don't think it's going to be Teresa sadly because of the way that plot line tied up this week, but maybe Yeah, he, yeah. if she's already dead, then it's going to be pretty suspicious when Teresa right. shows up again next week, yeah. But maybe he's uh pulling um you know, making a robot Elsie. Right? That's entirely still possible. So. Uh, the Ford Bernard plotline ends this week when uh, Stubbs gives his condolences to Bernard and, uh, about Teresa, and Stubbs hints that he knows that there's more going on in their relationship. Bernard shrugs it off. Joanna, is Stubbs, aka the least of the Hemsworths, going to be the one that blows this whole thing wide open, do you think? 
Uh, you know what? I'm going to object to that. Um, I got in this argument the other day. I think he's the middle of the Hemsworths. Oh, actually. really? You're not a fan of Liam, then? I, I'm no Liam fan. Um, yeah, I... Liam is I, way hotter than that other kid in The Hunger Games. What's his name? Peter? Uh, yeah, who's, whoever plays Peter. Josh Hutcherson. Josh Hutcherson. Um, Liam, you, you really think <laughs> Liam Hemsworth is not as hot as Josh Hutcherson? I, I don't know why you think we're talking purely on a hot scale. And also we were comparing Hemsworth's, not Hutcherson's. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm on the stub side of things. I, I am excited. I hope he does something heroic and doesn't get killed by Bernard or Ford somehow, you know? Right? Yeah. Do you have, do you have faith that Stubbs could figure this thing out? Yeah. I want him to rescue Elsie wherever she is, passed out in a broom closet. I don't know. I think they're setting him up as uh, – they're either going to set him up as one of the heroes of the series or you know, Game of Thrones style he'll be killed once um, Ford discovers that he's onto something. So. Right. But right. Uh, I think it's entirely possible that Stubbs is going to end up being one of our saviors. So the only other thing uh, that – you know, let's blow through some of these plot lines real quick. Like Charlotte and Sizemore – uh, Sizemore is creating a villain that Ford's theoretically going to use in his storyline. Charlotte tells Sizemore, hey, uh, you are probably just being tied up with busy work. I need you to help me with something. Takes him downstairs. Coincidentally, they happen upon Abernathy, who has had his memory completely emptied out. And so she wants Sizemore's help in smuggling out a bunch of his data that Teresa was going to help uh, her get out of the park. Right? Anything else you want to say about that plot line? I I have to say that she, I mean, like, her line was like, he'll do. And I was like, you can't, you can't, like, lean so heavily on what a coincidence. We'll pick this robot that you guys all remember from the first episode out of this sea of robots. Um, like, maybe if they had said, like, he's the freshest or something, you know. Um, but either way, I'm excited that actor's coming back because he's fantastic. Yeah. So. Uh, Lewis Hertham, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, great. Uh, all right. What shall we do next? Uh, let's talk about the William and Dolores storyline. William and Dolores stumble on some dead confederados. There's one that's alive. William doesn't want to help him. Dolores does. She goes to the river and then sees her dead body in the river. And then pulls the water out of there anyway. Sorry. What? <laughs> yeah. So, and then she turns around and sees William and none of the people are there, right? So our current theory about Dolores is that the Dolores and William storyline is taking place 30 years ago. Right. And that at the same time, we're also seeing modern-day Dolores uh, reliving her loop with William. Right. And that she's – when we see Dolores flashing back, she's kind of cutting in between these two time periods. Modern day, when there's no dead people there, there's no William there, and she's just retracing her loop and then flashing back to a time when she was with William. Right. Right. Is that is that mostly did I get that right? Yeah, I mean the, the comparison we can use in this episode, and we'll get to Maeve's whole storyline later. But you know, Felix talks to Maeve about how she can't distinguish between memory and reality, and you feel like you're living your memory. And so we see her in the street, and we see Maeve in the street of Sweetwater. She's remembering when the Man in Black attacks her. She reaches out to slash with her knife, and she slashes the new girl who's playing Clementine because she can't distinguish between her memory and her present and that's exactly what we're seeing Dolores a lot of people have been asking us as they come around to this multiple timeline theory like what is modern day Dolores doing and I'm saying if you have many hours in your pocket and want to rewatch the season you can see these flashes of Dolores tracing along all by herself she's in the train car by herself she's in the graveyard by herself in this episode 
So we saw her at the river by herself. Like the show keeps showing you by herself and you think it's just her like melting down. But I say it's her in the, in the current, in the present day timeline, retracing, yeah. retracing her steps. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and a couple of other things to mention about that. Uh, firstly, there is you – know, observe how the show is edited sometimes because it feels like through the editing of the show, uh, the showrunners are trying to give you hints. And in fact, Joanna, if – the multiple time period theory is wrong. This will be the most amount of time I think has ever been expended on any topic that turned out to be complete bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Can you, we've devoted so many hours to thinking and talking about this, uh, this multiple time period theory that if it's wrong, we will feel so stupid at the end of it. Um, But that being said, look at how things are edited. For instance, uh, Ford is having a conversation with Bernard this week and he says, hey, you know, like talking about erasing his memory and, oh, hey, uh, your memory's erased now and you don't need to concern yourself with, uh, with like bad memory. Oh, here, I have, the, I have the quote here. Quote, best not to dwell on these troubling memories. Otherwise, you might be drawn back into them. You might lose yourself in them, as some of your fellow hosts have every now and then. End quote. Cut to Dolores and William wandering right. through the desert. Right. You know, like it's a subtle way of editing telling you, hey, when he's talking about fellow hosts losing their way in memories, maybe he's talking about Dolores and her flashing back to this William. Yeah, maybe uh, he's talking about the very next thing you see. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, that's worth uh, pointing out as as a way that this is Mm -hmm. happening. Also, there was an earlier episode when uh, in the control room, someone says to Stubbs, hey, we have a uh, host off her loop Loop, possibly, right? Uh, they're probably talking about modern-day Dolores just going out and reliving uh, all this stuff from the past. Right. You'll notice in that scene where where he's, like, is she with someone? And the show's like, well, I don't know. It's hard to tell. So that, like, you know, we don't know. Is she with William? Is she by herself? We don't know. Um, but the um, the other thing I want to say about that dying confederado is, is you see um, – you know, William's sort of continued progression towards, I think, becoming the man in black where he's like, I don't want to help this kid. And she's <laughs> like, she's like, no, what kind of people would you be? And like, I actually thought William was going to kill that kid. Yeah, me too. Me too. Down by the river. But I rewatched it like three times. That kid's still alive when she comes back. Just yeah. Barely. yeah. Um, Maybe William like unplugged him or something when he was. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's what I thought. I thought there's, yeah. there's got to be a reason they show William giving those uh, menacing looks at the kid, you know? But anyway, so then finally they arrive at home, wherever Dolores is heading, and we see what we later find out to be a flashback is Dolores running towards the white church, and she sees all these people. The town is fully built. Angela, the Tallulah Riley character, is there uh, doing the dance moves that we saw in a flashback in an earlier episode. Armistice, Maeve, Lawrence's daughter, everyone's there. It's like Wizard of Oz. Uh, (laughs) And then... Then there's the massacre, and we see uh, some scenes that look very similar to Ford's episode three flashback, or I think uh, Teddy's episode three flashback, right, where uh, Ford has implanted this Wyatt memory in episode three of the series, and you see Wyatt going around killing people, and this is apparently the town where all that killing happened, right, presumably? Yeah, yeah. In fact, you see when when Dolores has this, like, vision of the massacre in the town, you see at the very least one shot that's identical except like the guy's 
not a soldier. He's like a sheriff. Right. But the background is diff- is the same, right? And yeah. yeah. And, he, and he falls the same way. Like it's it's the it's an, an almost identical shot. Yeah. And she broke uh, Vanity uh, – sorry. Jenna Robinson <laughs> broke this down at VanityFair.com in her, in her uh, re- recap of this episode. Go ahead. This episode is very confusing because yeah. we're at the point now where whether or not this stuff is taking place 30 years apart – is really impacting your understanding and enjoyment of the series, I think, right? Yeah. Because, because I feel like – I think if I didn't have this kind of structure to base it on that, oh, hey, this is 30 years apart and that's what's going on with Dolores, I don't know that I'd be enjoying the show very much right now. I, I think I would find it to be very incomprehensible and, and impenetrable. I wouldn't understand what we're watching. You know what I mean? Uh, but that's, that's my own gut feeling to it. It's so hard to know. Yeah. I have to say. But I but I will say that a lot of people were very confused by this episode and I don't blame them at all. Like I usually po- post my recaps like after the episode. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do this one in the morning because like I need some time to work on it. I think what is confusing is now what's happening. Uh, my understanding of the plot line now is 35 years ago, the park opens. Arnold, Some horrible stuff happens with Arnold – um, some horrible stuff happens with Dolores and maybe Wyatt in her hometown with this church. 30 years ago, uh, all that stuff is buried. The church is buried. Right. You know, uh, William and Dolores happen upon her hometown and then she's reliving the stuff. You know, 30 years ago, Dolores is reliving stuff that happened five years previous to that. And then modern day Dolores is reliving what 30 years old Dolores is, is living yeah. through. That loops is confusing. That is confusing. Is, yeah. And that's even if you think that the 30-year the time period theory is true. Right. right. If you don't think any of that's true, I can't even comprehend what your understanding of the show would be. You know? So... You know, I think some people are content to just sort of roll with it. Like, yeah. uh, like that's, <laughs> that's advice you and I get a lot is like just sort of like, hey, just watch and roll with it. But like... I'm not good at that. I admit it. I'm not good at it. Some people are, though. They can just watch it and be like, okay, eventually it'll be explained to me. And I'm like, I need to know now what's happening. I, I would never have guessed that uh, a, a person who writes incredibly meticulous, detailed recaps and then spends you know an hour and a half podcasting about a show each week can't just roll with it, Joanna. <laughs> so thanks for explaining that to me. But the, um, <laughs> well, but the thing I want to say about that town is like let's not get confused about the Wyatt storyline because the Wyatt storyline – with the with the soldiers and all that, that's a made up thing. That's a thing that Ford wrote and put into Teddy's head. But when he wrote it, he said, "Like all good stories, it's based in truth." You're right, and, and I think so, one of your theories is that Dolores is Wyatt, right? Because we know that the crazy stuff that went down at the park decades ago probably has something to do with Dolores. And maybe Dolores was one that freaked out and killed everyone, and that's why you see an image of Dolores putting a gun to her head in this episode, right? Yeah, if you look at the footage side by side by side, which I obsessively did last night, it, to me it looks like there's a massacre in this town that Ford then rewrote as this like you you know Civil War era. He, he says it's it's a time of war, and what I think he means is actually it's a time of war between Ford and Arnold. They're fighting over what their creation should be, and this is one of Arnold's moves. He's using Dolores as a weapon to cause havoc in the park. We see Dolores – well, we don't see Dolores shooting anyone. We see Dolores put a gun to her head. We actually see a male figure shooting and I think that person's Teddy, Teddy 35 years ago. So we've got Teddy shooting in the town and we've got Dolores with the gun. So I do think that Dolores is the Wyatt 
of that story, which is, I mean, we're already dealing with like, Bernard is Arnold, and like Bernard is a robot. When you and say we're I'm, already dealing with, you mean in in your head, and also the people who read your articles, right? And, and now theory. I'm like, and and <laughs> and the Man in Black is William, and now I'm like, like you don't want me to sell you why it is Dolores. I know you don't want me to sell you that, but I'm gonna sell you that right. why it is Dolores. But I, I, you know, firstly, I, you know, I love your stuff. We we link to it in the show notes all the time, Joanna, but. Um, I don't know that the show has been explicit about introducing the, you know, Bernard as Arnold 30 years apart because there's people who watch this stuff who don't even know about the multiple time period theory yet, you know? Yeah. I do think that the more these twists built up, if they are all true, it will be kind of a shit show when all the twists are revealed, you know, which presumably maybe we're going to get to the end of this season and some of these twists aren't going to be revealed, right? I think that's entirely possible. I know, and it's going to be like next season on. At least, yeah, like we already talked about this last week. At least it's not going to be like a big cliffhanger. Jimmy Simpson, the actor Jimmy Simpson, has said that it's not going to be a big cliffhanger. But I do wonder. I was tempted to introduce another theory, uh, which I stopped myself from doing last week, and now I'm like, I don't want that theory to be true because there's no room for it. It's like shunt it off to next season or make it not be true because there's no room for it here. Yeah. Um, but I, but like you know, a lot of people in our chat room are like, well, what you know, what's all this Wyatt stuff about? I really think it's smoke and mirrors. I think it's a distraction. I think it's Ford's way of doing like a Sizemore esque over the top plot with like guys and horns and all this stuff to distract the Man in Black from the real weapon he's sending at him, which is Dolores. That's what I think. But hmm. interesting. You know. All right. We'll see. A uh, couple of other plot lines to mention, and then we're going to welcome Charles Yu onto the podcast. Uh, so Maeve, all this Maeve stuff going on. Short version is she basically convinces Felix to reconfigure her at you know over the objections of Sylvester, and uh, apparently configures her so that she can now reprogram other robots. Oh, right? it's so cool. I thought it was really cool when Tandy Newton was like walking around town and telling a story. You know, and the way they wrote those lines, like it could have been like a stupid, like these are not the droids you're looking for. But she, she set the lines in a sort of a. That is not a stupid moment. I'm just gonna put that. No, that's not a stupid moment. But like, you don't want that moment in Westworld necessarily. And like, um, but you know, she was like, you know, the sheriff discovered they were upstanding gentlemen, and like whatever. You know, she was just like, it was a narrative. It was. I I really liked it. You didn't like it. It was very well executed from a filmmaking perspective. I, I kind of wish it had been set up a little bit, if that makes sense. Because I don't think she said, hey, you're going to program me to reconfigure other uh, droids, right, or other hosts. Uh, because I, I, I'm trying to decide if they had done it that way, if they had set that up earlier, would the payoff have been even better, right? Because then when she says it to the bartender for the first time, you're wondering, oh, is it going to happen, you know? Whereas when she says it to the bartender, it just caught me completely off guard uh, in, in the show. Does that make sense? Yeah, they say they allude to it. I don't remember the line, but there is like definitely an allusion to it. Um, but I wasn't expect not that I was expecting it. It's just when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, they did drop a tiny seed of it. But um, I don't know. It just really worked for me. Watching the Hector heist again was still enjoyable to me yeah. this time. It was Tchaikovsky. Like it works every time for me. So I don't know what to tell you about that. And. Uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty – I liked it. So We should point out also that the songs used – yeah, Tchaikovsky, I think Swan Lake uh, for the bank robbery scene. And then the player piano songs were House of the Rising Sun mm-hmm. and uh, Back to back Black. Of, back to Black, Amy Winehouse. Yeah. Uh, or is it is it Back to Black? Yeah, it's not Back yeah. in Black. Yeah. 
uh, Back to Black, which uh, raises a, a trivia fact worth noting. The showrunners uh, of Westworld really like song titles that have the word black in the title. Because mm. uh, I think there is also Paint It Black and also Black Hole Sun. Uh, so three makes a trend, Joanna. The other thing worth mentioning about Maeve, you point out here in the show notes, uh, we see why Maeve was reset by Ford and Bernard. Uh, she lived through this old storyline and uh, and where her daughter was murdered and she was brutally stabbed by the man in black. And we find out why later. But uh, with Bernard, she says to him the line, you know, the, the pain is all I have left of her, which is a line that Bernard uses in, I think, episode two or three of the series. right? And Del- Dolores said it, too. Right. Bernard said it about his son. Dolores said it about her parents, and Maeve said it about her daughter. And um, it just goes back to that theme of like, what makes a human? What it's this idea of like the we talk about this a lot in in philosophy that death is what makes life um, valuable because you know it ends. And I would say the same of like grief and pain makes love and happiness valuable. You need to have those things. And Ford sees it as a mercy to erase um, Maeve's pain. But I think all of us watching were like, don't take this from her. And um, Tandy Newton was just incredible in that scene. Um, She's done so well with these really restrained performances all season and that here we see her just hysterical and crying and it's also very powerful so uh, she continues to be the show mvp for me how is the felix sylvester stuff reading for you uh i think it has the risk of being pretty ridiculous you know that these techs are being outsmarted by this host even with like incredibly high intelligence you know, well, the- I don't think Felix is being outsmarted. Like, I think Felix is because we have this establishing plot of him. Well, he's being outsmarted in the sense that he's he thought that she wouldn't hurt anyone, and then she just like slashes Sylvester's throat immediately. You know, I guess he, he's being true. he's being taken advantage of, is what I'm saying, right? Yeah, but he's I I think he's a willing participant. I mean, he doesn't like Sylvester to begin with, and he's like intellectually curious about what's going on with Maeve because it sort of feeds into his desire to be a programmer, to be this other thing. Right. Um, at the very least in this episode, Sylvester finally said the thing that our listeners have been asking for a couple weeks, which is like, why don't they just brick her? Why don't they just <laughs> shut her down? And at least Sylvester finally came up with that idea. It was a little late for him to do so, but he did. Brutal, um, scene, the- brutal scene when she slashes his throat and then Felix cauterizes it right afterwards. Yeah, well, we learned something about, you know, the the medical progress of Westworld, right? Yeah. So. Uh, the question is, do you believe it when Felix refuses to brick Maeve? And I think the show has laid enough track that the answer is yes, right? I believe Felix, you know, I'm sorry Sylvester was too stupid to not come up with his idea to brick her earlier. That might have worked well for him. Yeah. But the Felix thing, like him being like sort of seduced by her and not even just sexually, just like, you know, charmed by her, intrigued by her and and uh, feeling – powerful for being part of something like especially when sylvester was like you'll never be more than this and now he gets to be part of this exciting other thing um yeah i I believe that yeah i think it i think it reads well i think yeah i I agree that what is implausible is that they didn't put a stop to this earlier in this process but i think you know the events of this episode uh still read as plausible to me we find out that uh the hosts have an explosive charge in their vertebrae uh, that is meant to go off if they ever try to leave the uh, the park. So that's another 
thing. Chekhov's explosive vertebrae, guys, I think is <laughs> something that's going to come back to haunt them. Could be. All right. And then the only other plot line is Men in Black and Teddy. And uh, they stumble upon Angela tied up. Uh, Angela's played by Tulu O'Reilly. Uh, I did a periscope. I do a weekly periscope about uh, Westworld um, at Dave Chensky on Twitter and Periscope. And, and uh, some people in the chat room didn't know who that was. And I think it is a little bit – could be confusing if you aren't paying super close attention that the woman they find on the ground tied up and still alive is played by Tulu O'Reilly who is the intake host for William in episode two of the show. Right. And we also see uh, the man in black say, oh, I thought they would have retired you. But I guess, you know, Ford uh, likes keeping around a pretty face, uh, which is he saying that because he's visited the park for a long time? Or is he saying that because he's William, Joanna? What do you think? Uh, because he's William. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we also we also see Tallulah Riley, as you mentioned before, in Dolores' flashback to the very beginning of the park. So we see her play a townsperson. We've seen her as an intake host. And now we're seeing her in this, like, Wyatt plot line as a, as a spy for Wyatt. And, uh, yeah, to me, those are timeline anchors, just like the way Lawrence being Lawrence and El Lazo uh, was a timeline anchor for you. This to me was like a big alarm bell for the multiple timeline thing. So that yeah. that uh, the man in black knew that Tallulah Riley's character had been around for a really long time, right? Yeah, not just that, but just the whole like I thought they would have retired you by now. I mean, it just I don't know. That's I, I get I get why if you've never heard of the multiple timeline thing, it wouldn't ring such a loud bell for you, but it definitely did for me. So yeah, we learn more. There she is. We we learn more about who the man in black is in real life. In this episode, he's a titan of industry. He has a wife and a daughter. Uh, and uh, by the way, he's apparently been married to his wife for thirty years, which is like quite a coincidence, given that yeah, William exactly 30 is years. Uh, given that William is about to marry someone. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that would be quite a coincidence if they weren't the same person. But mm-hmm. uh, I think we we like at this point there feels like a ton of evidence that they are the same person, right? Right. There's. Not necessarily a mountain, but certainly a a hill of least, evidence. Yeah, a hillock, uh, a grassy knoll, a hillock, yeah. an archipelago <laughs> of evidence. You know, like just a significant chunk of evidence that there's the same person. Right. Uh, and you know, he goes off on this massive speech, telling uh, what like what he's doing here, what he's trying to find, uh, and. The short version of the story is that his the man in black's wife, real life wife in the real world, killed herself because he thought she thought that the man in black was evil in some way. Right? That's what I got from it. What was your takeaway? Not evil necessarily, but like I was thinking more like emotionally closed off, like never loved her. Mm. You know, maybe there's a, there, there's a darkness in him that he doesn't address, but he talks about being walled off. Um, so I feel like, you know, if we believe that William becomes the man in black and if we believe William is headed towards some kind of tragedy with Dolores, then, you know, I could see William being like, I don't believe in love anymore or I don't, you know, I don't believe any of that. Just like sort of burying that romantic side of him. And then if you um, are married to someone like that for 30 years, it can just eat away at you. Um, not everyone 
kills themselves necessarily. Like divorce is still a good option, but um, that's that was sort of my interpretation of that. Um, his daughter, he says, his daughter did call him like a dark star and said that he was prone to like either raging or collapsing in on himself. Um, but I don't know if it's like evil. I think it's more like he got crushed in a substantial way and just went out to live his life and was successful, obviously in his job and his career, but personally and emotionally just dead inside, you know? So he goes back to the park to try to see, um, you know, a lot of people have asked like, why, why 30 years later would the man in black, you know, come and, and do what he's doing? Like, why wait 30 years after whatever happens with Dolores to like go hardcore after the maze? And now we know there's an inciting incident. We think we know there's an inciting incident of his wife killing herself and him trying to reckon with what the park did to him 30 years ago. Right. And then we also learn that the Maeve flashback to the man in black happened pretty close to present day, right? Like a year ago. Because they said she's been a madam at the Mariposa for like a year. Yeah. So about a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know, I am, I think I'm keeping it in my head mostly, you know, like in terms of where things and when things happen. But oh, it, it it is just growing in complexity every single week. Like where we are on the timeline, um, do we think we're going to get confirmation of the Man in Black slash William theory next week, Joanna? What is your thought on that? I think we'll get it in the finale. Actually, all right, we'll see. I, I think it would be good if they revealed it next week because then they could tell a story that presumes that like that you understand that as the audience and i think they have right. they have more freedom that way because there's so many things you can't do if you're trying to hide that from people right so but uh yeah uh i i think your read is is correct on this um uh, i'm gonna quote from the man in black here at that last speech quote she said if i stacked up all my good deeds uh it was just an elegant wall i built to hide what's inside from everyone and from myself i had to prove her wrong so i came back here because that's what this place does, right? Reveals your true self, end quote. Uh, so yeah, maybe uh, less evil and more uh, not the person that you that people think you are, right? Right, yeah. right. And then uh, Tulula Riley stabs Teddy in the chest or in in the lungs. So he gets he gets killed again, or at least grievously injured. And then we find out that the Tulula Riley character is in league with Wyatt. And uh, is trying to call Teddy home, right? Right. And I think that's basically it. Was, it. it was great, though. I was really glad that we had had that conversation about escort missions. That's what they're, that's what they're called, right? Escort missions? Yep. Um, a couple weeks ago or last week or whatever because I was like, oh, no. <laughs> the, the Man in Black's escort mission just failed. I mean, I don't, we don't know if Teddy's dead. Just the same way I don't know if Elsie's dead. But uh, he's very injured. We still have a lot of questions about how the arrows work on uh, <laughs> Westworld. <laughs> but, yeah, the point being that, that Angela, Talil Riley's character, is a, is a spy. So we'll see what happens next. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think Teddy's dead just because it seems like she's not talking to him in a way that she's trying to kill him. So my guess is that he's still alive. We should also point out, by the way, that uh, in last week's episode, they showed Ford and Bernard, and I mean Charlotte and Teresa showed Ford and Bernard, hey, by the way, hosts are remembering things that are happening from previous loops, and that's causing them to act out violently. But theoretically, that was all supposed to be doctored code, and that's not how hosts actually behave. But then we find out this week that, in fact, Teddy does behave that way, right? And he does remember the previous loop with Man in Black. So that was slightly confusing, I thought. 
No, uh, it's tr- it's it's what has been happening. Like we from the very beginning when like the milk bottle bandit was shooting people up in the saloon. Yeah. Remember he was only shooting people who had killed him in previous stories, I think. Yeah, but, so but he was they, only they shooting knew- other hosts though. That's the thing. And, and whereas Teddy acted out against a newcomer, you know, a, a guest, I should say. Which I think is I don't think we have seen that before, have we? Right? I mean, certainly we've seen um well, I don't know they would have a need to have a grudge against a guest, but Teddy wasn't able to break his code enough to shoot him. Right. He could only sort of like drag him and tie him up, you know, so – or knock him out and tie him up. So, yep. Uh, so anyway, I just think it's it's slightly uh, confusing. It might be a, a little muddy. A little muddy. Yeah, yeah, that's all I'm saying. I mean, uh, you know, I'm bringing up these issues that I have and it seems like they didn't bother you. So obviously listeners' mileage may vary. Uh but overall, I thought there was just a lot revealed in this episode, uh, a lot of exposition, and some of it is sublime and very well done, and some of it was, a, was quite confusing to me. Uh, overall thoughts on the episode before we bring on one of the people who helped create it, Joanna? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I continue to think the Maeve and Bernard stuff is the most interesting stuff on the show. So I'm always glad when there's an episode when there's both of them. And I'm very curious to see what our payoff will be for William and Dolores. So. All right. Well, let's we bring see. on uh, Charles Yu to talk about it. Uh, we'll be back with him uh, right after a very short break. Uh, all right. Well, welcome back to Decoding Westworld. Joining us today, we have a very special guest. Uh, Charles Yu is the author of the novel How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. He's also the uh, co-writer of this week's episode of Westworld, Trace Decay, uh, and I think a story editor on the show as a whole, right? Uh, Charles, welcome to Decoding Westworld. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with both of you. Uh, it's great to have you on, Charles. And uh, you are also Taiwanese American, is that correct? I am, yes, indeed. I am also Taiwanese American, so always great to see <laughs> All right. uh, Taiwanese Americans representing in the uh, in the entertainment Rep- industry. Um, Represent? I give you a high five right now. Yes, digital <laughs> digital high five. Well, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you on, and congrats on uh, the show and and on this week's episode. Uh, and just so you know, like the context. We have just finished recapping the episode and are now talking to you about the episode. So all the horrible oh, things you said about the episode, uh, people have already listened to, <laughs> but, they've, uh, but they're still listening and uh, want to hear some insight from you about like, making the show. And so I guess just on a very basic level, why don't we start by like, talking about what it is a story editor does and uh, mm-hmm. kind of how you fit into making the show. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I... The story editor is a fancy title for a uh, pretty pretty low level writer. <laughs> I, I could try to dress it up, but that's that's the truth. Um, I uh, this was my Westworld was the first uh, job I had in television, um, and I came out of it from writing books. As you mentioned, I wrote a novel and a couple other collections of short stories. Um, and made the leap from doing that into television. So I was very lucky to get the job at all and also lucky to get that title, which essentially means you're, you know, 
your the, the the entry level writer, I guess, is staff writer, and and then story editor is one rung up from that. And once you kind of enter that, you're uh, in theory also responsible for you know sort of uh, other other things other than just writing uh, the episode or or episodes of the show. You can kind of join the ranks of people who get to have input in um, in in the show, I guess. But but really, what it means in practice is you're one of a bunch of people stuck in a room eating takeout food and trying to come up with stories. Well, firstly, that sounds like an awesome existence. But, uh, <laughs> but secondly, it sounds like you're, it's like you're the, uh, uh, the line cook of the Westworld creative process, basically. Sadly, that is incredibly accurate. <laughs> Are there any sort of big picture, you know, if if in your capacity as story editor, are there any sort of big picture moves that you feel inclined to take credit for right now? <laughs> um, all the good stuff. No, I. I uh, for, for instance, no, was I it guess... your decision to set the to set the story in two different time periods? <laughs> no entrapment, Dave. We promise. Nice, nice. Well, I know you probably know that. Maybe you don't know this. I was a lawyer for 13 years, so I, I was prepared for that kind of leading question. Mm. I object to that question. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to um, badger the witness. But, uh, but yeah, but yeah. Any, any story um, I, beats I, that you're particularly yeah. proud of? I mean, I'm proud of lots of things. I don't know that I can attribute any any anything of note to myself and and still be kind of honest. I mean, I think what I brought to it was, you know, for better or worse, maybe, maybe worse in, in some respects, but I, I brought to it a fiction writer's perspective and a novelist's perspective. And I think in some ways it's not uh, totally inapt to think about a season like this on a show like this as being, having some things in common with uh, a big long chunk of fiction rather than an episodic series of television. So I, I wasn't totally a fish out of water in that respect in that I had tried myself to tell my own stories in, and, and so knew something about how to establish say, things like tone or, you know, point of view and, and um, world building. Um, but as to anything specific, I think my interest in science and, and philosophy and consciousness, I think some of those, you know, I, I hope in some way I contributed to the conversation in, in the room for, for things that, I sort of nerd out on, um, but we had plenty of other people. I mean, Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy are plenty versed in science and other things themselves. But I, I guess if I brought one particular interest of mine or, uh, you know, kind of preoccupation of mine, it was with some of the AI stuff and the philosophy stuff. Gotcha. Um, and like, for instance, this week you're the co-writer. So I guess, uh, one question is: Does does this mean you graduated from line cook to sous chef? You know, were people so impressed <laughs> that you know how, how does how does that transition happen from storyteller to I'm sorry, story editor to uh, to co writer of the episode? Um, I think it's different on on all kinds of on, on every show. It's probably a little bit different. You know, we are Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan, our showrunners, were um, you know generous enough to basically attribute credit to people when for, for, for varying episodes. So I think it's um, on some shows you, you might see some, sometimes certain people write more episodes than others, or you won't, you, you'll see the creator write uh, for, you know, a lot of the episodes. Um, in, in this case, I think 
the reality was we we did work as a team on a lot in a lot of respects. It was very much their vision and their pilot, and but we also spent a lot of time together coming up with ideas. So um, when it came down to it, they were um, you know that when they came down to sort of assigning episodes, um, you know, people on the staff basically each got um, a crack at at you know trying their hand at one. So it was exciting. It was definitely exciting because I think going in, I wasn't totally sure if I would get a chance at that. And then to get it, to, to have the opportunity to co-write with Lisa was really an honor and a privilege and a, a huge learning experience for me. I think <laughs> I was, yeah, I was probably prep cook at best in terms of preparing <laughs> ingredients and making sure I didn't bump into her in the kitchen. But it maybe, was, maybe uh, you're more like you dishwasher know. in this episode. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> I keep so getting, I, I, I'm getting demotion. <laughs> I know. What is that about? Um, so I'm curious then about, about your own, timeline on this in terms of when you know this this show had an unusually long run-up to a premiere um the pilot i think was shot but two years ago when did you come on the project um so after the pilot was shot and they hired a room uh you mm-hmm. know convened a room so i came on at that point so i was on from from the beginning in the sense of when the room started, but the pilot was already um, had been written and shot by the time any of us came on. Gotcha. So you've been, uh, do you've been working on this for almost two years then, right? Right. Yes. Uh, from the time, well, I guess from the time I, we finished season one, um, uh, it was something like 16 or 17 months that I was in the room. So yeah, it was, it was quite a, quite a, a long experience and a good one. Yeah, um, this episode it had uh, what I thought was like a very lovely rumination on the nature of AI and what is the difference between robot pain and human pain. I think the show seems to want us to ask that question. You know, if pain is just you know these uh, electrical impulses that we have in response to certain things, and we have them, and and hosts have them, what is the real difference there? Um, do you so so the the show wants us to ask that question? Do you have an opinion on that issue? Do you feel like we should treat AI as as we treat humans? Like AI have the same rights as humans? You know they shouldn't be put mm-hmm. into undue suffering. Like what is your personal position on that? Ooh, yeah, I mean it's a good question. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, I uh, I mean first of all, I think it's really exciting to 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 see that question answered in the context of, you know, I mean, we've seen it, I think, plenty of times in, in movies and other forms of entertainment. I, in, the, in the context of an ongoing series, I think that's one of the things that's really exciting. In a series like this on HBO with, you know, these actors and um, these showrunners, it's it's really kind of, as a science fiction writer, you know, I guess, like, among other things I write, I, I have tried my hand at science fiction. I think um, to see that even attempt an attempt to explore that question in a real way is really exciting. I personally, I mean, I, I think we're not terribly close to the point where AI could be taken, you know, where, where I would feel like some ethical sort of gray area in how I was treating an AI. I run into this problem a little bit um, in a very silly way with um, my son and I play Minecraft and we'll just like, spawn mobs and sometimes I will just mess with them because why not? And then I, I have felt the occasional pang of like, what if that weird blocky sheep or zombie or creeper actually has 
some tiny flicker of, I mean, in Minecraft, it's an absurd example, but it does start to raise the question. I, I can't, I think, I guess if I had any kind of position, it'd be, I could imagine a point in, um, if not my lifetime, then like the lifetime of my kids, um, where that could be a real ethical question, but I, I don't think we're there yet. I see. What do you so, think? I, I think you're kind of <laughs> you're kind of punting on the question. Then you're saying we don't need to deal with it right now. So, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't want I don't want to piss off any AI that are out there listening to this. And, <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, and then they'll come I'm for playing you. it safe. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Know, I think like I, I think uh, uh, Westworld, and also there's an episode of Black Mirror, the Christmas special, that I think dealt with right. this issue very well, which is if you if AI can experience pain. Uh, and suffering, what is humanity's obligation to prevent that? And uh, it's going to be, you know, and it's. Ha- I think it's it's a lot closer than uh, than you're letting on, to be honest, because I, I, people are already doing experiments. Like there's, for instance, uh, I, I read about this guy who's programming uh, a a AI or a robot or whatever to order illegal drugs off the internet, and then it's like, uh-huh. okay. Well, who's responsible? Like, can you prosecute the robot? Do you prosecute the guy who built the robot? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it's already starting to enter our consciousness, these kind of ethical issues. But right. it, uh, it is very tough because on the one hand, when Bernard asks that question about what makes your suffering different than my suffering, hey, the, the obvious answer is I'm human. You're just a machine that I wrote code onto. Uh, you know, you, you don't have a beating heart it's just like a uh, it's just silicon chips and such and right. but on the other hand it's like hey your pain is real you know it's like ai steven spielberg's ai you know um his love is real but he is not like the, these robots suffering is real but they're not so I, I don't know i feel like we're gonna come up with it pretty quickly and i feel like um i mean people already kind of do this too with like the sims for instance you know if you play yeah. the sims mm-hmm. like you can you can do things right. in the sims where you torment uh, oh, sim characters. So, I've for instance, done, they'll. I've um, done it. <laughs> you've done <laughs> it. You've done it. So they'll I've, they'll like I've, build a I've pool. Done. Go ahead. What did you do? No, no, I'm sorry. I, I've done it surely through my own incompetence because I'm so bad at the sim <laughs> that I end up torturing the sim, and I have to shut it off because I can't watch anymore because the guy can't even go to the bathroom because I somehow always put the toilet facing the wall, <laughs> and I mean I'm like the worst Sims player ever, and I I'm sure in Sim world I'm viewed as some kind of like really horrible person so yeah so you can like you can like build a pool and like remove the means to get out of the pool and then they just swim around until they get tired (laughs) and die you know what i mean um and and yeah so so i I feel like part one of the westworld experience is already here where you can torment these ai but part two of the ai AI actually experience suffering in any significant way is not here yet um but could be you know well my question my question for you both is how much does it matter that the AI look like us. Um, Cause I think that's an important step, you know, like um, Dave got me a very generous housewarming gift, which is uh, like an Amazon Alexa, which is the perfect gift, right. For a decoding Westworld uh, podcast host. And, you know, so it's this, it's not AI, but it's this like little robot that like, you know, tells me the news on the weather, but it's, uh, you know, it's a little black circle on my counter versus like if there were something that looked like a lady sitting there, it would be a lot more troubling. It would so. be a lot harder to mm. cuss it out when it doesn't give you the right answer, <laughs> right? Might be, might be. But yeah, Charles, I what do you think? Like, the, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I almost go the other way on that. It's weird because of, I think, the Uncanny Valley thing. Yeah. I almost go the way where I could imagine a sim or, you know, something like a really chunky, blocky thing in my screen. If, if like, a sim turned to me and said, you know, please don't hurt me. <laughs> like, first of all, I would run out of the room screaming. And then <laughs> when I came back, I would, I mean, that would be an incredibly chilling moment to have something in a way that is is clearly not human, exhibit some kind of sentience. Right. You know, I, I think in some ways I've been trained probably partly by watching too many movies and TV shows about it that 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 there would be kind of I I would want to poke it more if it were human and say you're not really passing my Turing test yet. But if mm. if it came from an unexpected unexpectedly kind of low tech place like. I mean, maybe what you're saying, Joanne, is right. Like, if my toaster started talking to me and said, "I don't <laughs> want to make toast today," then I would then I would sympathize more. Uh, so let's um, let's talk about this episode, Charles uh, Trace Decay, season one, episode eight. And I, I will say right off the bat that there's going to be a bunch of people who are going to wonder, listening to this interview, why don't you ask Charles about blank theory or blank theory? And Charles cannot talk about those theories. And uh, we could spend, you know, half hour of me just continually asking him that question in different ways, but that would be a pretty boring interview. So we, what we'll try to do is talk about things that Charles can talk about, uh, but I just wanted to set expectations that although I may once or twice attempt to trick Charles, uh, in general, we will try and stay safely within the bounds of like what's going on in the show. So I guess, like, overall, in approaching this episode, right um, – what were the key story beats that you felt like you really wanted to nail in season one, episode eight? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I appreciate that. And I will look out for those traps and hopefully not fall into them. Um, but I do appreciate it. And yeah. you're right. I cannot. If, if, and if you do ask a question that I can't answer, it will probably just not like, look like anything to me. So I'll just pretend that I, I don't understand what you're saying. Nice. Um, I, I think, you know, for it, it me, may cause you to question the nature of your reality, for instance. Okay. Anyway. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I think the, for me, the, the thing is coming off of seven, you've seen uh, this horrible, you know, thing where Bernard has been forced to, um, to murder Teresa at, you know, at Ford's command. And, um, the, if the the compelling thing that I I would want to see as a viewer and I as a storyteller was excited about is are we now going to get this scene which we do get I think of um, of Bernard and Ford talking about this and so in the diagnostics setup that we've seen a number of times throughout the season we now have not just um, you know someone we thought was a human but we have the chief the head of programming sitting there in the chair. And that that was like such a rich and kind of um, cool thing that I think Jonah and Lisa probably always knew was going to, you know, is sort of inevitable as a setup it, it, once they conceived of, of Bernard as a host. But um, the idea of somebody who has spent or what he thinks, you know, is um, years and years and who knows how long it is, but a long time um, thinking about these issues is now realizing that he's. Um, you know, he is a programmer, but he's also um, a program. Yeah, it, it was a great 
reversal moment when you hear Ford's voice at the beginning of the episode asking you know Bernard to bring himself back online. Uh, it's like a it's a stunning reversal from everything we've seen in the preceding seven hours of the show. Um, so I thought that landed really well. So uh, nicely done on that. Um, any anything else that you felt like was particularly important to get right this episode, or, or that you're particularly proud of from this episode? Yeah, I mean, I think the the Maeve's, Maeve's story through here too. I mean, she's come off of you know a couple of episodes where her mind is being blown in increasingly sort of disturbing and um, just surreal ways, and watching her kind of make the turn, which I think we see in this episode of taking control of her reality, you know, to the extent that she, um, she can, I think this was for me always a, another fascinating thing to try to, you know, what is it like to be a, what is it like to be a Bernard? You know, also what is it like to be a Maeve? And then what, what would it mean to be a robot and start to come to terms with all of the things that she has learned in the last couple of episodes, you know, episodes. And then, how she understands even conceptually what, what she is trying to do here, which is, you know, get out of there. Right. So, um, that's, that's like, um, it's impossible to grapple with, you know, like to, to actually put yourself in her position, but that's the challenge and kind of the, the fun of it is trying to actually do it. Can I ask you a question that I don't mean, at all to be a trap but i think it's one you can answer which is and and yeah let me know if you can if bernard you know has been working there under ford as a host for at least as long as we find on this episode as it took to you know he's been there long enough that ford talks about him sort of as unlocking this emotional key in the hosts early on seemingly in the development Mm -hmm. how can you tell me how the other Delos coworkers like don't notice that Bernard never ages? Are they just like, man, that guy has a good skincare regimen or like, what (laughs) What do you think? think? Um, Yeah, that's, I, I, (laughs) yeah, it's that Bernard is well moisturized. (laughs) gets a lot of sleep. (laughs) Hydration is is the key. Really. Um, All right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I'm trying to think that you're right. That is potentially a question where, and I, I, again, it's not just that I want to like hide the ball. It's also, um, it would, it would take away enjoyment from, you know, millions yeah, no. of people and that would not be fair of me. But I, I think there is something to the idea of like, you know, we've seen a bit about how speaking to what we've seen already, there is a, you know, you get the sense of this place as, um, a hierarchical place, right? I mean, when you see Felix and Sylvester down in the bowels and you see someone like Bernard, you know, they, they may not have a whole lot of, you know, direct contact with someone like that. And it's a big corporation. You know, I, I, I could, I could buy that, um, regardless of what the time period is, that it's not exactly, um, it's, it's not exactly something that people might notice. You know, we've heard Teresa say, uh, we've heard, you know, Charlotte Hale and Teresa in their conversation that, you know, oh, actually it was probably when Teresa was talking with Ford. But we we have the idea that, you know, there had been other people in Teresa's role as well. You know, we've we've had the idea that uh, Elsie is rotating, you know, people rotate in and out from wherever they're rotating in and out from. 
So I, I think for me is always, um, and, and I, I do want to preserve some of the, the mystery here, but I think, um, I think maybe I should stop talking is what I think. <laughs> I got you. I, got you. I, I think, I mean, yeah. that's, that's basically things, what, yeah. that's basically what Joanna posited in the, in the recap is that, uh, there's, Smart we know people page. rotate in and out and, you know, like if you work at a large corporation, uh, you know, sometimes people have life changes. They, they can have a baby or something. You don't even know about it until years later. So, uh, uh yeah, there's like definitely explanations for why you might not. Uh, no, be able to track someone's non-aging or aging. Plus the moisturizer thing. Plus the moisturizer so, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> all, right, all right, so... There, there are those people, yeah. So, Charles, uh, SlashFilm.com, Peter Serretta has been a big you know, supporter of uh, several of the podcasts that Joanna and I do together. Um, so let me just again say, I understand if you can't answer this question, but uh, Peter wanted me to ask <laughs> you this question, uh, which is, it seems clear to me and you can disagree or have no comment on this, but it seems clear to me that at this point in the show, this episode, that the showrunners slash writers want the audience to start wondering things about the timeline. Like they want, when, when Ed Harris says, you know, I thought they would have retired you by now, or some stuff, when people allude to things that happened in the timeline, you know, years ago or decades ago, that by this point, that there, there's hints in there that, uh, you know, that, that you want people to start asking that question. Uh, so the question Peter wanted to ask was basically, at what point were the showrunners anticipating that people would ask that question? Was it this episode or was it much earlier? Because I think we know indisputably that people have been asking the question since like episode two. Um, so I don't know if you can answer that question or if that even makes sense, but uh, I had to ask because... Peter wanted me to ask, and he's obsessed with this show. I think it's a really great question. I'm going to try to not answer it, but not not answer it in a way that that says, that maybe pushes the conversation along in an interesting way, maybe or not. But um, which is so my version of like a host misdirect, which yep. is that I think um, it's okay. So just personally for me, it's it's been very interesting and instructive as kind of someone who's new to this. Um, to watch as the dialogue sort of happens between really, really astute, you know, viewers of whom I would include Peter and both of you and lots of people on Reddit and uh, just thousands of people who come up with all kinds of amazing theories. I think it's, um, it's, it's like a huge kind of uh, opportunity to tell a story in a way, but it's also this, um, it's also this daunting kind of thing to, to think about, Oh, lots of people are going to think really hard and lots of people who have watched lots of TV and know how TV, you know, or, or yeah, I've seen how TV shows are put together, um, can, are going to be trying to guess at every little thing here. So, um, how do you live up to that challenge and, and still have a satisfying story? That's been really cool for me to watch. Um, and also cool to watch as I think, uh, the showrunners, and I can't speak to what's in their head, but to to, to watch how much I think they kind of knew the way that this would the show would be watched. You know that that, that I would say is that it's it, it almost does feel like this kind of um, cool sort of uh, re- slow unveiling of their story, and and that 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 is something that I had no experience with in just writing my own. You know fiction, uh, novels and short stories. So, um, and, and in terms of the actual question, I mean, 
I, I don't know about any specific episode and when, when they would want to have, you know, people to, to start to guess at it or speculate. Um, but I think that, you know, to have a world and a, and a timeline, you know, and a mythology that kind of, that characters have openly talked about in the episodes already has aired, that's rich enough to sort of withstand this much theorizing, you know, and even encourage it. Um, and, and this level and sort of sophistication of theorizing, um, that's, that's just been like, I mean, I, I knew it existed. I just, I, I, it's just been really gratifying to watch it. So that's, that's me waving my hands and not giving an answer. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. well, can I, can I ask you this question? You know, there, there's been, it, it hasn't turned into like a full blown war, but there have been some pop culture writers who think that the, you know, the Reddit approach to watching television is the wrong approach, that theorizing is somehow damaging the way that stories get told or absorbed. And um, and then there are those who think it's a great load of fun to do it that way. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, my question is, from what you've seen from this season, I mean, I know, you, I, you know, it seems to me like you guys are kind of enjoying it. I know you listen to podcasts. We know that Jonathan Nolan was like on Reddit this week, messing around with the fans a little bit in an enjoyable way. So it seems like you guys have a good attitude about it. But um, do you do you feel at all those those twinges of let me put it this way. Uh, I was talking to Vince Gilligan about an Easter egg they hid in the in the episode titles of Better Call Saul. And he was such a champ about it. But he's like, you know what? We didn't think Reddit was going to get it that fast. And they got it really fast. And we were <laughs> like, um, okay. So, you know, I, I guess I don't have a real good button to put on that. But just, you know, the nature of theorizing, how it's impacting the way people are watching Westworld. Do you think this show – I think you just said you this show encourages that sort of digging into mythology, yarn walling, theorizing. Yeah? yeah like, like, like do you have, an, <laughs> do you have you. an opinion – for instance, do you have an opinion on whether that impacts, you know, people's enjoyment of the show in other respects? Like, for instance – uh, the AI, uh, the nature of AI and, and suffering and human suffering, you know, like if people are focusing too much on the two time period theory, you know, does that mean they can't then focus on the other stuff? Like, do you have an opinion on, on how people perceive that? I mean, I, I guess, yeah. What I would say is that there, this show is, um, is a big, you know, HBO flagship show. And it's like, um, with that, this amazing cast and this amazing crew and the production values is just, it's telling a story on a huge, you know, canvas. And um, that's a certain kind of story for sure. And so I think, um, so when you have this this level of engagement and, you know, people coming to it, to the story for for some of these aspects, the kind of let's get into it, you know, like, let's dig in and, and figure it all out. Then that, to me, that, that goes with that kind of storytelling. I, I think there are, you know, I think to join his point, I think there are, um, kinds of, or maybe to both of your points, there, there are kinds of stories where, yeah, maybe, maybe you wouldn't necessarily want, want that. And, and the show wouldn't have it built into it. I mean, if, if, if I, it's not impossible to imagine a much smaller version, you know, say uh, um, uh, a tiny kind of 
outpost of some, you know, on some far flung, you know, outpost of, of some corporation where they were telling a different story or, you know, I mean, a movie, you know, a movie version of it where you're telling a single story over two hours. Um, then, then I think you have a very different kind of model of, of what people are going to be able to do in that time period. Right. So I, 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 I don't know that I could come down on one side or the other in terms of what's, what's, you know, is this bad for TV or this or that? I think, and I don't think that's what you're asking. I think it's just, but for this a show of this size, I think it's probably inevitable that you'd have people getting the, the reality is this is how people enjoy engaging with, with big, big shows now. So you kind of, mm-hmm. um, know it's out there yeah and and we're not uh necessarily condemning any of that you know given that uh we do a westworld podcast and (laughs) joanna recaps every episode in (laughs) extreme detail every episode but because because we love that kind of thing too uh but we I guess I just think that there are some shows – what I more mean is that and, – and I think Charles did speak to this. What I more mean is like people were sort of bristling when Reddit got its hands on Mad Men and was coming with all these like crazy, you know, Sharon Tate, whatever <laughs> theories for Mad Men, none of which turned out to be true because that's not the show that Matthew Weiner was making, right? He was not making right. a show that was feeding into that. Um, and I would say, you know, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is sort of like the medium version of that and then things uh, – and then and then Westworld just has like it's it's very fruitful i think in that way um where it has the sort of the headier philosophical ai great performances good character work but then also you know this is a jj abrams nolan joint like it's gonna have mystery boxes and twists and turns um a lot of people loved about lost and and that sort of that sort of tv show so that's what i mean yeah (laughs) Yeah. No, exactly. I well said. I can't, you know, I don't think I could put it better than that. So, uh, Was there anything about this episode, Charles, that was really challenging uh, to break from a story perspective? Like that there was a scene or a moment that you just kept working on and it wasn't working out. And, and how did you like did that ever happen during this episode writing it? And uh, and how did you kind of get through that? There were plenty. <laughs> I mean, as you can see, we're eight episodes in now. And this is... Um, for me, it was just incredibly steep learning curve, you know? Um, and so I had the luxury, but also the embarrassment of being with people, all of whom were more experienced at television. Than I was by, you know, mostly by vast amounts. And so, uh, I think again, going back to your kitchen analogy, I was, um, uh, uh, I had the safety and security of knowing that I was not really, sort of driving the bus. (laughs) So, um, in terms of lots of big decisions. Um, and so, but you know, for me personally, what I got the opportunity to really, um, dive in on was some of the ideas, um, that Ford is talking to Bernard about, and there are two big themes here. Um, then that doesn't exactly, that's not, you know, to your question, David, Dave, it's not, um, in terms of the breaking or, or some of the trickier structural things, because to be really candid, I mean, a lot of that stuff, I, I, I was happy to, 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 you know, let Lisa or all the other people who are more experienced, you know, I felt in, it was in safe hands. And so I, I kind of got to watch and learn really in a lot of ways. Um, uh, and then, 
where I could, you know, try to bring some of um, sort of my own philosophical sort of, um, you know, interests into, into what, into what they're talking about. Uh, very cool. Yeah. And like I said, I, I really loved uh, those segments of the episode. Did you ha- have any inspirations, like in general, as you're approaching the show, uh, any works of fiction or nonfiction on uh, you know, book form or TV or film form that really uh, inspired you when you worked on this? Yeah, um, I definitely did. And I think, you know, Jonah and Lisa have probably talked plenty about some of the things that they did, the games they played and stuff they read and watched. Um, personally, some of the stuff that I, I, you know, thought about it specifically in the context of this, uh, were, uh, Daniel Dennett's book. Um, you know, he's got a number of books, but he, he has one consciousness explained in which he puts forth, um, you know, his theory of consciousness and, um, some, some critics of that book have said it, you know, would be more aptly titled as consciousness ignored because actually Dennett's theory in there is to describe consciousness as a kind of epiphenomenon where, um, what we see is actually a kind of illusion. Um, and you know, he goes into great detail to, to describing what he means by that. But, um, I thought that was interesting. Um, Doug, Douglas Hofstadter's book, you know, Gertle Schirbach, um, which is this incredible synthesis. If people aren't familiar with it, this incredible synthesis of, uh, I mean, symbolic logic and Lewis Carroll and, um, music and, you know, music theory and, uh, among other things, you know, it's this incredible kind of just one of a kind book of, you know, imagination, but also logic and, um, you know, uh, science and art just all kind of mushing together in this thing that I, I still really can't even believe exists. And so that, that book, I think, and that book also talks a bit about loops and about recursion. And so, um, I, I think, those two books are, you know, they're quite well known, I think, To, But if, if people aren't familiar with them, I, I think they're fascinating and always, so the, would the always books recommend are, checking them out. The books are Consciousness Explained by uh, Daniel Dennett, right? And what's the other one? Mm-hmm. Gödel Escherbach. Escherbach. Yeah, yeah. Gödel Escherbach. Douglas yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, can and, I, go ahead, Jonah. Oh, I was going to say, can I use that as a jumping off to ask you, uh, since next week's episode is named for a Bach piece... Are we going to hear some Bach in uh, can you give us that spoiler in episode nine? You know, I don't even know. This, this is what's really exciting for me is I haven't seen um, cuts. Like uh, I had seen at least some versions of episodes up to this point, but um, at the point where I kind of was, I jumped, you know, jumped was rolled off the staff and kind of uh, jumped off board um, at, at the end of season one. I, I didn't get to see the filming. So I've read, you know, versions of the scripts for the last two episodes, but I haven't actually seen the filming. So I, I'm going to, I'm finally going to get the experience that I've been wanting, which is to actually watch something that I I really don't know what it's going to look like when I see it. So I, I hope so. I love box. Well, my other question is we know that, um, you know, g- given interviews that some of the actors in the show and so, and at least one of the directors, Vincenzo Natali, who we talked to, um, that there were things that were, I don't know, kept from maybe is one way to put it, but things about the plot that they didn't know while they were filming. 
Um, but that's, I mean, that can't possibly be true of a writer's room, right? Or were you, was there anything held back from, from you guys in the room? No, I mean, I think that's probably right. And that's, um, I think you're right in that. Right. So the directors, as you know, we see now in the credits, we've got, you know, these cool directors like Vincenzo Natale and others, Stephen Williams did, you know, episode eight did to come in and direct an episode. They don't, um, they need to know obviously big parts of the story in order to understand the story they're telling, but, um, but still you could kind of silo information to some extent, you know, um, Whereas for in the room, yeah, we generally knew what what the story is going to be. That said, who knows? Like, I would. Uh, Lisa and Jonah are both incredibly intelligent people, and their combined intelligence, you know, I would not put it past them to find a way to have surprised everybody in the world somehow. But I don't know how. You know, I don't, I, I'm not even going to speculate. I, I I think I know how. You know where it's going, but um, I. I I'm going to be watching along with everyone else to see if that is in fact what happens. <laughs> so uh, I have a couple more questions and then I think we can wrap it up uh, unless you have anything else, Joanna. Um, no. But, uh, you know, Charles, like how difficult is it to write, you know, the same character 30 years apart? No, I'm just joking. That's I'm not going to ask you that. Um, but, <laughs> but I am curious. Uh, okay, no, my real question, This is this is going to sound like an incredibly self-aggrandizing question but it is not that i'm just genuinely curious because you you know you've mentioned uh, engaging in the world of uh, online fandom uh but right. uh, as someone who helped make the show westworld to you what makes and i'm i am not asking for any specific names <laughs> what right. makes a good westworld <laughs> podcast in your opinion <laughs> Wow, that is a that's actually a good question. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I I've listened to quite a few. Um, I love this one a lot. Um, and not my question, but thank I'm not you for saying, saying that. that because I'm on it. <laughs> um, like, yeah, what 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 elements make it make a podcast worth listening? Because there are, I think, over forty Westworld podcasts. I so, didn't know Dave was. Are there that many? Question. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Joanna. No. Yeah, it's you know, I mean, it's, for me, it's it's um, the you know, extremely kind of extremely sort of uh, generate like generosity of of viewership or readership, you know, it's like trying to give the benefit of the doubt to the storytellers. Mm. Uh, you know, that's a pretty self-interested thing, but, <laughs> but people who are watching it with the eye towards, okay, what is, you know, without bringing a whole lot of sort of uh, baggage to it and, and then, you know, letting it play out and seeing it. But I mean, I think, you know, it's all the things you would expect. It's people who seem to know, um, what, what a show like this is going for, you know, intuitively. And, and, um, I, I think, I think it's, it, to me, it's really very equivalent to, um, to a good literary critic. It's someone who knows how to read a text and say interesting things about it. Um, and regardless of whether or not they end up being true, um, <laughs> to, to articulate theories and have really good uh, reasons why those theories would make some kind of sense given what they're seeing. And also, I mean, 
um, and I'm learning this, this is not coming from a place of someone saying this. I mean, this may sound, I don't know what this is going to sound like, but it's like, I'm constantly kind of intimidated by how complicated storytelling has gotten on television, even as someone who's like in theory participating in it. But, um, <laughs> I, I'm also incredibly impressed with, um, how, uh, how sort of, um, a, you know, a, a, how much attention to detail and how much sort of intuitive understanding of, of this medium and this kind of, this particular kind of like highly serialized, um, you know, multi, multi kind of narrative thread storytelling, how it works. And um, so I will, you know, to blow smoke at you guys, like, I, I think, the way you understand this kind of storytelling, regardless of the theories, whether or not they're true, you know, like <laughs> how you understand these kinds of stories and what could be, what's in the range of possibility and, or at least giving a plausible reason why things could or couldn't work. You know, that's really cool because I mean, as I can't think of a more gratifying thing as someone trying to tell a story is knowing that there's a reader who's going to expect and demand and actually appreciate, um, appreciate all the nuance and and world building that goes into all of this stuff got it was yeah. that was that yeah that, that, that's my question and like <laughs> I, I really was not asking you know to get smoke blown up our asses i i just i'm genuinely curious because i i try to better myself and and the product that i put out into the world and so i want to know like what the show creators themselves think makes for a good thing so that like that's something that uh you know i and we can focus on um I- I think what makes a really good Westworld podcast is having like at least a sous chef, if not a prep cook <laughs> from the show on to talk about it. Yeah, and maybe a dishwasher as well. I agree. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Charles, I don't yeah. think you can answer this question, but uh, it, is, it is a question I had. And it, if you can't answer it, it's fine. But, like, is there a theory out there that was like – and I'm asking you to answer this without saying whether the theory is true or false – but was there a theory out there that you were surprised came up? Like some some theory that might seem incredibly crazy to us, and you're not confirming or denying it, but it's a theory you read and you thought, wow, that's crazy that th- that they got did that. I, <laughs> did I tell you how much I think this podcast is great? And <laughs> nice. Um, nice. Uh, I, uh, uh, so, th- yeah, this is the point where I'm like Peter Abernathy and I start to... <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. And glitch. That's cool. That's cool. Um, I, 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 th- I will say this: at the end of the season, there will come a reckoning, and uh, everyone will get to, you know, we'll get to rank all the podcasts and all the <laughs> scorecards will be will be created, and um, people may or may not be vindicated, but uh, we'll we'll have an accounting of <laughs> of all of that. Wow, you're, you're talking like religious terms, like the Book of Life or something. <laughs> Um, a reckoning. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, all right, well, last question, Charles. You've been so generous with your time. Is just uh, you know what's next for you, and where can people find more of your work if, if they want to, more Charles you in their lives? How can they get mm. that? Uh, yeah, I don't know who wants that, but um, <laughs> I am trying to finish up a novel, um, which I have been working on for a number of years, and uh, and that'll be done. Well, that's basically done. So. Um, and that'll, that should be out in a year or so. And then I've, um, you know, I'm continuing to work in TV. I'm actually working on an, another HBO show at the moment, uh, 
for Alan Ball, the creator of Six Feet Under and True Blood, among other things. Um, and so that's been really exciting. It's a very different uh, challenge and set of things for me to learn. I'm cooking, I'm being a prep cook in a different kitchen now. So, and maybe I'm a little more than a prep cook now, but yeah. Oh, I'm hey, at the sauce station. Hey, I, I have to, I, I know I said that was the last question, but I do have one last, last question, which I have mm-hmm. to ask because it's such a rare opportunity to actually interview an Asian American who's in, uh, you know, working in pop culture. Um, mm-hmm. Is, was it, like, did you contribute anything to the fact that Felix is an Asian person? Like, this is just a really random question, but I'm curious, like... No, no, it's, I'm yeah. glad you asked it. I, I, I wish I could say I did. He was already in the pilot and, and um, cast, uh, or he was cast when I came on. I was really excited to, to write. Well, I mean, I'm very excited to write for everyone, but it's, it is, I mean, both sadly and, you know, optimistically, I think you're right, Dave, it's, uh, it's it's still uncommon enough, especially on I think a scale this big, you know. And it's I applaud HBO and the showrunners for having you know a character like Felix in there. And so, um, so yeah, I did. I wish I could take credit for that, but it it was really neat to have that opportunity. It's still something I think about um, in terms of like, is there a kind of like not responsibility, but is there a kind of opportunity? as you know, one of not that many people that, you know, look like me (laughs) doing, you know, this kind of prep cook work and writing for not that many characters on screen. Every time you see one, you're like, Oh, there's an Asian dude on my screen right now. What's (laughs) he going to say or do? So, yes. Uh, well, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's a responsibility, Charles. No, I'm just joking. I think you should, you should do whatever the story demands, but it is, uh, it is great to see, uh, another Asian brother on screen. So, uh, and also yeah, behind, behind the, uh, the camera as well, uh, working on it. So, um, well, uh, Charles, thanks so much, uh, for your time and, uh, congrats on the series and, uh, keep up the great work, sir. Uh, it's something that, both Joanna and, I, Joanna and I have gotten a great deal of enjoyment out of. So, Thanks, uh, Charles. Well, thank you both. Yeah, thank, thank you, you both. I've really enjoyed it. I love reading your work online, Joanna, and I loved your uh, cello looping thing of uh, the Pixies. <laughs> oh, thanks. It, it was beautiful. Thanks, I love that song. Like, I think it's my favorite song, actually. So, I appreciate um, that. Uh-huh. Well, cool. uh, we yeah. will, we will be in touch after the uh, finale. When and, the uh, reckoning When happens. the reckoning occurs. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> tell you what we think. So, and okay. I think you've, you've done a Look pretty forward. good job of avoiding spoiling anything. So, congrats on on that as well. <laughs> okay, thanks. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.